You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. That is why Evelyn is the best. No one else, everyone else would have blinked with a thunderstorm over her head, but no, no, not Evelyn. Um, if you're new here and you're wondering, like, did I just hear that? Is the roof falling? Um, our, just so you know, if you're new, uh, above us is the children's ministry, where the children's ministry classes are. So what you heard are kids having fun and learning about Jesus. And so on the, at the welcome lunch, when we go around, we see the kids area. I tell you, whenever you get distracted by the kids running overhead, that is an invitation from God to pray for those kids, whether they're biologically your kids or not. So let's take a minute to just pray for the kids who are learning upstairs, and then we'll, we'll move on together. God, we're grateful that um, you have trusted our church with this uh, message of the gospel for the next generation. And uh, even as they're learning upstairs now, we pray that they would continue to hear the gospel, respond to it, and uh, that we would see uh, their, the Spirit's fruit in their life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. It'd be awesome if they started running around again right now. All right, well, we're finishing up Psalm 73 today. We've been doing a series over the last four weeks on doubt and looking specifically at this psalm and how Asaph dealt with doubt. And one of the things I've really tried to get across from this story is the trajectory of how Asaph's doubts don't stay the same, that, that there is the possibility of growth and of change over the area of doubt. Because unfortunately, we often talk in our culture as if doubt is intractable, that doubt is just a thing that is there that can't be helped, it can't be, uh, it doesn't have its roots in anything. It just exists. Our doubts are just part of who we are and we can't change them. Now, I think that's a pretty cynical and, and despairing way to talk about doubt. And I don't think it's a very biblical way to talk about doubt. As we're going to see in the psalm, if we haven't already, doubt is something that, that has its roots in a, in a variety of different places, but, but it can have its roots in some pretty ugly places. And as we bring those things to God, there is the possibility of change around the area of doubt. Um, as I've talked with some of you guys about doubt over the last few weeks, it's been really encouraging to me to hear how you're wrestling with some of the, the things below doubts for you. But I've also heard how different people's experience of doubt are. You know, there are some of you who um, are, are really wrestling with this in a, in a really existential way. Some of you are really have a very light-handed approach to this. You know, you, you don't have a lot of doubts, and that's great. Um, so I don't want to paint with one brush, uh, but I am going to talk out of, as best I can understand it, Asaph's experience here in Psalm 73 and my own experience around the issue of doubt. Because I think when we bring these things to the light, uh, we're able to see God at work. There they are. There are the kids again. All right. Well, if, you, if this is the first week that you're here or maybe you just didn't pay attention the first couple of weeks and you were here, let me just do a quick recap of Psalm 73 before we wrap it up today. Psalm 73 was written by Asaph, who was a significant religious leader, a, a Levite, a worship leader, during the time of David. And he wrote a number of psalms, and uh, they kind of became a, a style, uh, and so that psalms of the style of Asaph became popular. But, but Asaph, the, the first one, the historical figure that we're talking about in this psalm, um, wrote this psalm during a time of really religious revival in Israel, when everything seemed to be going really well for Israel's spiritual life. And yet Asaph was really wrecked with doubt. And he was asking questions that we're still asking 3,000 years later. Specifically the question of, if God really loves me, if God is really for me, if God really cares how I live, then why do wicked people seem to have as good or better of a life than I do? 
If God is, is for me, shouldn't the fact that I, I serve him and I, and I give up things for him mean that I get a demonstrably better life than my pagan neighbors around me? And for Asaph, this was a really core question. And I say 3,000 years later, we still wrestle with questions like this. Either why do good things happen to bad people or the inverse, why do bad things happen to good people? And those two questions haunt a lot of us with doubts. Well, for Asaph, though, it wasn't just an intellectual exercise. This wasn't a philosophy class essay he had to write. This was an issue for him that was born out of envy. It says in verse 3 that in his envy, he, uh, it was out of envy that he saw the wicked. He wanted what they had. It wasn't just, I can't believe God's letting them prosper. It's, I want to prosper. I want that. For Asaph, his doubts were, uh, had their roots in the issue of, his desire to have what other people had. And so in the first week when we talked about the series, we asked the question, where are some of the roots of some of our doubts? Are they in envy like Asaph? Or maybe some other sins that we want to be aware of and repent of and grow out of? And we said that doesn't mean that every doubt all of us have is rooted in envy, right? Uh, just as smoking can cause cancer, it doesn't mean that every cancer is caused by smoking, right? There's a lot of different things that can cause doubt. But envy is one of them, and it's worth looking at Asaph's story and seeing, seeing if we're in that boat as well. Then the middle part of the psalm is what happens when doubt sort of metastasizes in a community. Asaph looks around him, and he, he sees how the prosperity of the wicked is causing his neighbors to doubt, or he's assuming they are at least. And it, it sort of heightens this cycle of discouragement for him to the point where it seems like his faith is almost lost. He says that, that this had become too wearisome a task for him to bear, to sort of hold this on his own. And so he throws himself on the community. He goes into the synagogue where he finds God and God's people and the sacrificial system. And in that process, the psalm sort of pivots 180 degrees. We get to talk about the fun part of the psalm today, the last part, where Asaph goes from being this person wrecked with doubt to this person full of faith. And it almost seems like two different psalms on the surface. It seems like two different experiences of God and two different experiences of life. But I think as we look at this second half of the psalm, you'll see a lot of the same words, same phrases used, but in really different ways. And, and I want you to hold on to the first part, so I'm spending time reminding you of it, before we get into the second part. Because uh, my, my fear is that some of you will read the first part and be like, that's me, that's who I am. And you'll just stop there in despair and cynicism. And then others of you will read the second part and be like, that's who I am or who I'd like to think I am at least. And, and you'll sort of ignore the first part. But Asaph's journey includes both, right? He goes from the person whose life is wrecked with doubt to the person whose faith comes through on the other side of doubt. And so let's look at that together. In Psalm 73, verse 18. Truly, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. Uh, before I go on, do any of those phrases sound familiar? I, on your sermon outline, I gave you sort of just a couple of the times when Asaph borrows languages, words, phrases, idioms from the first half of the psalm and brings them into the second half of the psalm. Uh, one of them's truly, right? That's how he begins the whole psalm. The first word of the psalm is truly. He brings it back here as he sort of starts the second part. And then another one is slippery, right? In verse two, he says, when I considered these things, my faith almost slipped. My feet almost fell out from under me. Now in the second half of the psalm, he looks and he says, actually, it's not me that's slipping. I look at the wicked. They're the ones whose feet are in slippery places. Verse 19, 
They are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. This is a fascinating description for me because how did Asaph reverse course on his previous objections to God? I mean, it's not that the wicked became less prosperous. It's not that the problem of evil went away or that he solved it. How is it that Asaph could go from being someone whose life was described with so many doubts to being someone who is so confident in his faith? Well, we talked about that last week a little bit about how he goes into the sanctuary and how God plays a role in that. But I think it's also worth noticing how Asaph doubted his doubts. Instead of assuming that it was true that the wicked would prosper, he began to ask the question, is it, is it really true that it's better to ignore God? And he starts to look around him and realize that really the, the trajectory of the wicked is not towards God, but away from God. Is it really true that God doesn't care? He began to study the scriptures and, and hear in the sanctuary and recognize the consequences of sin and see that they are on a course for God's judgment, not God's permission. This is, I think, an important part of dealing with doubt for me, is trying to bring the future into the present. Sort of looking at what are the things that I'm envious of? What are the things that the people that I'm envious of, where's the trajectory of their life going? Now, I think as an adult, it's easy to look back on your childhood years and realize that you were envious of people whose lives were going in ways that were pretty destructive. I mean, think about, I don't know, when you were eight, nine, 10 years old. I'll just speak personally. I was envious of the rebel kids who would speak back to the teacher and would be a class clown and sort of do whatever they want. And those are kids that are held up as like, oh, those are the cool kids. At least in my generation, they were. Right? And now as an adult, I think, oh my goodness, well, the kids that were like that, that I grew up with, that, that was not coming out of a healthy place, out of a healthy home life, out of a healthy self-concept, that was not leading to a thriving life in the future. Or, or in teenage years, at least where I grew up, the cool kids were the ones whose parents let them have parties at their house and who were absentee and uh, who were very permissive. And at the time, that seemed like something to envy. Man, they get away with everything. And as an adult or as a parent, you think, oh my gosh, can you imagine being a teenager and not having your parents care enough to have boundaries for you? That's not something I envy. That's something that I, that I would never want to have. Now, why do I bring that up? I'm just saying, as an adult, we're tempted to envy the wicked the way that, that Asaph did without considering what the outcome of their course of life is going to be. We covet after... Uh, after the way of life of the wicked sometimes, without realizing that the course of their life is taking them into a place of judgment before God. That's what Asaph describes here in verses uh, 18 to 20. But it shouldn't surprise us that we do that because these feelings of uh, bitterness towards God and doubt don't come out of an, an intellectual place necessarily, but an emotional place. And Asaph says when he looks back on these doubts, the emotions caused him to be blinded to what was true. Listen to how he describes himself in verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Asaph saying that in the moment, my doubts seemed intellectual. They seemed insightful. They seemed to, to be helping me see beyond where others can see. But now looking back on them, Asaph says, actually, I, I was a fool. I was being brutish. I, I thought that I had the insight that others didn't have, but it turns out that I was being blinded by my emotional objections. The voice paraphrase puts these verses this way. 
You see, my heart overflowed with bitterness and cynicism. I felt as if someone stabbed me in the back, but I didn't know the truth. I have been acting like a stupid animal towards you. Um, I love that he describes it as bitterness and cynicism. Right? Bitterness is expecting something of God that we're not getting and being angry about it. Cynicism is feeling like we know things that other people don't know. And, and Asaph has put those two together, bitterness and cynicism, and it's brewed doubt for himself. It's caused him to say, I know what's really going on and God is holding out on me. And, and those two things are, are part of the, the toxic cocktail of doubt for Asaph. But the result is that it, it hasn't made him smarter than people around him. But in his own words, he's been acting like a stupid animal towards God. No, I don't, I don't like using the word stupid in a sermon because it sounds stupid. Um, I couldn't come up with a, a better synonym. But I think in this case, it, it is a very descriptive word of, of how Asaph describes the effects of doubt on his soul. Um, he says like, he's like a, a brute beast before God. He, he's unable to, to see or think clearly. I, I, I compared it to, I have two very old, very dumb chihuahuas. I love them, but you know, one of them barks at his own gas. I mean, he just, they're not, they're not smart animals. If they were trying to learn nuclear physics, that, that's the concept. The chihuahua learning nuclear physics is the concept that Asaph is using to describe how we are before God. Out of bitterness and cynicism, we think we understand, but we're, we're like brute beasts before God. Asaph has seen himself earlier in this psalm as self-righteous. He's seen himself as the only one who is really living for God. But now he sees himself as brutish and ignorant. Now this sort of flip doesn't result in him thinking less of himself or less of God. You'd think that this is kind of being self-condemning, but it's not. It's seeing what's really going on. And it results in him being able to move towards God in a way that he couldn't when he was full of himself. So how is this helpful for you? Like, why, why was it helpful to talk about this? Uh, well, one thing I think that's helpful is when we think about our doubts, and if envy is part of your doubt mix, what's sort of going on behind there, as we've been talking about throughout this psalm, it's worth asking the question, what, why am I uh, envious of the people I am? And, and what am I hoping will happen or not happen as a result of that envy? When you're praying through feelings of envy, and I hope you do, consider the future outcomes of the sin that you're pining for. What, what would happen in your life if you truly got this thing that you're envious of? And you'd say, well, I'd be happy. Well, would you? I mean, is that, is that what, where it would really go? And that's a time to open up to God and talk to him about that. And the second way I think this is helpful is to recognize how bitterness can make us stupid. Um, and, and you know bitterness can make you stupid, right? But if you're married, you definitely know this. Because at some point, if you're married, I imagine you've had a fight, or I have at least, where you've had this moment of clarity right before you say something, where you say, I'm going to pay for this. And maybe if you're really stupid, you say it out loud, I'm going to pay for this. But out of bitterness or out of anger or something, you say, I'm going to say it anyway. And then three hours later, you say, why did I do that? <laughs> why was I being so stupid? Or the next day or the day after that. Um, bitterness can cause us to say and act out things that don't reflect even what we know is best. How much more true with God, right? That like a brute beast before us, uh, we could say things and, and believe things that are untrue. 
Now, I, I say this from a place of freedom, not a, not a place of judgment. I'm not trying to, to disparage your intelligence or, or your faith, but to say that um, this verse can be a really helpful and freeing verse to come back to. The idea that our doubts don't have some sort of power over us that we're a subject to, but that it's possible, it's possible, that we're actually being brutish in this moment. That, that we don't have uh, absolute clarity, but in fact, we're being blinded by our anger towards God or our cynicism or our bitterness. That there might be something behind it that we can actually work on rather than saying, well, I just have my doubts. I can't do anything about them. Um, all right. Uh, let's get into verse 23 and 24 here. Um, because this next section is one of the most positive and beautiful sections of the psalm. And I think it's worth really considering in the context of Psalm 73. That is, Asaph has not been a model of faith, right? Is that fair to say? Asaph has not helped us think like, I want to be like this guy. In fact, most of what Asaph has said so far has been kind of a warning of, oh, watch out. In fact, we just left him as a, a brute beast before God. And that's why in verse 23, when it starts out with the word nevertheless, that's such a key word to notice. Nevertheless, right? In spite of all his self-righteousness and foolishness and harshness and self-righteousness, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Even in the midst of all the ways that Asaph has been full of himself, he's been uh, doubtful towards God, even the ways that he's been sinful and envious, nevertheless, God is with him. In fact, I don't want to make too much of this, but verse 23, it says that, Asaph says, God, you hold my right hand. I, I know hand-holding is reciprocal most of the time, but if you've ever tried to help a two-year-old cross the street who didn't want to hold your hand, you know there's a difference between holding hands and someone holding your hand, right? That uh, when we cross the street, me and my two-year-old, um, I'm going to hold onto her hand when she wants me to and when she doesn't want me to because I'm going to hold her fast. I'm going to keep her safe in the midst of that. And I think that's the emphasis Asaph has here, that God has held his hand. God has held him fast throughout this uh, season or, or maybe lifetime of doubt and of self-righteousness and of anger. This is so comforting for me, and, and I hope for you as well, that, that he holds on to you even when you don't want to hold on to him. As 2 Timothy 2 puts it, um, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself that he will hold us fast. In verse 24, it puts it this way. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me to glory. Asaph is looking at the present, right? That, that God is with him now and at the future, that, that God will one day receive him to glory. Does Asaph here have a concept of heaven? Maybe. We're not sure. Heaven in, in the Old Testament generally, but especially in the Psalms, is brought up sometimes, but not nearly developed as much as in the New Testament. But maybe this is one of the Old Testament hints about the, the hope that Asaph has for an eternity with God. This is good news for all of us who doubt, though. Be this is good news of all of us who have brutish postures towards God, who feel like we can't see past our anger or our bitterness or our cynicism or our envy, that we're afraid that God has left us because our doubts have clouded him out, that we can't cloud God out of our doubts that in the midst of our doubts, he is there, that he holds us, he guides us, and one day he will receive us with him forever. And this changes Asaph's whole view on what's important in the world. 
Look at verse 25 and think about how different this is from the earlier Asaph in this chapter. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Well, just, just think about how different that is from the Asaph we've met these last couple of weeks. Right? What did the Asaph that we met earlier in the Psalms want? He wanted the riches of the wicked. He wanted to get away with the sins of his neighbors. He wanted a body that was healthy and never broke down. He wanted to see the wicked get what they deserved, and he wanted to laugh at them in the process. But now what does Asaph desire? Right? He says, nothing I desire besides you. And, you know, part of me wants to call BS. I'm like, I read verses 3 to 9. You desire a lot of stuff that the wicked have. But, But Asaph has grown, right? His doubts are not the same. He's gone from desiring the things of this world to to God himself. Now he says, my heart and my flesh may fail. Rather than being envious of of the bodies of the wicked who never seem to break down, as we talked about in verses 5 to 9, now he says, even if my body does break down, even if I don't have my health, God, I still have you. He says, uh, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That word portion is the Hebrew word halek. And it has a broad range of meanings, but one of them is this idea of a portion as a spoil of war or an inheritance. The idea that this is what we get as a result of being faithful or being part of the winning side. And Asaph's looked around and said, the wicked seem to get all the portions. They seem to get all the war booty. They seem to get the, the, the inheritance that I want. And now as his faith has been transformed and his doubts have been transformed, He says, God, you are my portion forever. You're the cut that I want. You're you're the the inheritance that I need. Not the things of this world, but you, God. You are what I want. This is possible for you and for me in the areas of doubt. This isn't just Asaph's story. This can be your story as well. Your doubts don't have to be the final word on whether you believe or not. They don't have to be the final word on where you go with God. And I'm not, I'm not minimizing doubt. Like doubt. The reason we're doing this series is because doubt is part of my story too. Um, but we look at Asaph and we look at this psalm and we think it's possible to, to bring these doubts to light, to bring them to God, and to move past them and to move through them and to move to a place of faithfulness on the other side of them. That's what the end of the psalm tells us about approaching and attacking doubt. Uh, look at verse 27. For behold, there are those far from... I'm sorry, let me read this again. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This last, uh, last section of the psalm really addresses the question of how do we personalize faith? How, how do we bring it from something out there that we believe or struggle with or wrestle with to something that is a description of our own hearts. Uh, If you read this psalm carefully, you might notice that verse 28 is really a a restatement of the very first verse of the psalm. It's called an inclusio. It's where you start with one theme and end with the same theme. And the difference is usually where you find a lot of significance. Verse 1, if you go back up in your Bible and you look at verse 1, you see that uh, Asaph talks about how truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It's all third person. It's talking about other people, right? God is good. God is faithful to them, right? 
And then what do you notice in the pronouns in, chapter, in verse 28, right? He uses I, me, or my four times. Here it's about him, right? This is Asaph's story. This is Asaph's journey. It's not just that he believes it for other people, but this is his heart. Look at verse 28 again in light of that. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Don't waste your doubt, right? I want you to have a story like Asaph's. I want you to say at the end of your life or the end of your season of doubt or the end of the season you're going through, I have seen God's faithfulness through this. Maybe at the beginning of it, I believed that God was good to other people, but now I've seen how God is good to me. That this wouldn't have happened if Asaph hadn't gone through that journey. Not only would we, we not have Psalm 73, but, but he wouldn't have grown in this way. He would have left the same person we see in verse 1, believing that God is good out there to other people. But when he sees the gospel at work in his life, right, that he is not loved, it, that he continues to be loved in the midst of his self-righteousness, his envy, his sin, his doubts, that, the, that God's love for him is not conditional, it's not based on his performance, but it's based on God's free offer of salvation. In the midst of that, we see Asaph of verse 28. The Asaph who's able to say, I have made the Lord God my refuge. I hope that's your story, that, that you have made this choice for yourself, that you look to God to be your refuge, to be your place of salvation. Now, Asaph's writing this during the period of the Psalms, uh, before the time of Jesus. We read this after the time of Jesus, in light of the gospel. We see the way that the gospel gives us a free gift of salvation that is available to all of us, not based on what we've done, but based on what Jesus did on the cross. And when we receive that free gift, when we internalize it, we make it a faith, not just a religion, but, but our own decision to be uh, followers of Christ. So uh, at the end of this, at the end of verse 28, Asaph says, he's made the Lord God his refuge so that he might tell of all of your works. You might remember we talked about this last week. In verse 15, in the midst of his doubts and of his darkest moments, Asaph said, if I had said all these things out loud, I would have betrayed your generation. I, I couldn't tell of your works because I didn't think they were you. I, there was nothing that would have been helpful to other people. Now at the end of it, Asaph says, now is the time to speak. Now is the time to speak of the goodness of God. Some of you, I know, have gone through doubt journeys, maybe decade-long doubt journeys, and you've come out the other side of it with faith that is stronger and more personal and more meaningful. And when you speak about those things to, to the next generation, to one another, to our life groups, here in services, you encourage all of our faith, and we can grow in faith together. I really hope that one of the outcomes of this series is that we're able to talk about doubt as if it is a scarlet letter or as if it's intractable, I'm not saying it's a virtue, a lot of doubts rooted in sin, but it's real and it's there. And in the midst of it, you are loved by God. And so it's free, I hope our church, it's a free place for us to bring those doubts to the surface and talk about them honestly, what might be behind them, and how we can move forward together as a church and a community of faith. A couple questions for you to pray about as we wrap up this series. Um, number one, and this comes back to the first week, how do your doubts point you to areas of your heart that need growth? I've talked about envy a lot because that's what's in the psalm, but, but maybe it's something else. How do you connect your doubts to areas of your heart that need growth? And you might not be sure what those are. That, that's an invitation for you to talk to God about that in prayer. Talk to people who love you. Talk to your life group. 
hey, I, I'm struggling with this doubt about God's existence, about God's goodness, about what, whether God loves me, um, whether God hears me when I pray. Do you have any ideas about, when you look at my life, how that might be connected to any sins uh, that I'm harboring? Second thing, how do your doubts impact others, and how are you being impacted by the doubts of others? So we talked about last week. You know, we believe in community. We believe together. We lean on one another in faith. How, how are you doing at that? Right? If you're really wrestling with doubt and really struggling with doubt, um, are you trying to go it alone? Or, or how, does the imp- how is the faith and doubts of others impacting you? And then the last thing, based on what we talked about today, how could reflecting on the gospel reshape your doubts? How, is it possible in your mind to have a story like Asaph's? That, that your, date, your doubts could be different because of what Christ has done on the cross for you. And um, I would love to hear as you pray about that, uh, how God works in your heart through that time. All right, well, let me pray for us as we close. God, I'm grateful for this psalm. I'm grateful for the story it tells us about you, uh, that, that the wicked don't prosper because you're ignorant or impotent or unwilling to do anything, but because we are among the wicked. We are among those who are by nature children of wrath, according to scripture. And it's not that you do nothing, it's quite the opposite. You have sent your son to die on the cross for the wicked, wicked like us. And it is through faith in him that we have hope like Asaph's, hope stronger than Asaph's. God, I confess so often uh, doubt is part of my story in ways uh, that I'm embarrassed about, that I don't want to talk about, I don't want to acknowledge. Um, But I look at this psalm and I think about all the ways that you are good, that you hold my hand in the midst of doubt, in the midst of dark periods. Uh, And God, I want to be part of a people and part of a church where we talk about those things openly and honestly so that you would be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.